0: Welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host on this channel. Today, we'll be speaking with Casey Lertz, author of From the Grounds Up, Building an Export Economy in Southern Mexico, published this year, 2019, by Stanford University Press. Casey is an assistant professor of history at Johns Hopkins University. Casey, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. Glad to have you with us. So to begin,
0: would you give us a brief overview of the book and tell us how you came to this project?
1: Sure. Um, so again, thank you so much for having me on. It's really a great pleasure to get to talk about the book uh, a little bit more. It's funny how kind of a book comes out, and it's been a little while since I've had a chance to you know do much on it. It's kind of out of your hands for a while. So it's great to come back and have this chance to just just delve back into it for a while. So the book covers um, the emergence, the building of an export economy, specifically the coffee economy um, of southern Mexico. This particular region is called the Soconusco. It's basically the southernmost bit of Mexico, southernmost bit of Chiapas, right on the border with Guatemala. And it covers the era from roughly the 1860s to the 1920s, as this place went from being really a backwater kind of a... Cowtown, town, middle of nowhere, disconnected really both geographically, um, politically, in so many ways from both Mexico, as well as from Guatemala, as well as from kind of larger global markets. And how did it, my major question was, how did it go from being that kind of a place really out of the way to being Mexico's largest exporter of coffee by the 1920s? And while it's a book about coffee, while it's a book about the Soconusco It's much more kind of, to me at this point, a book about all of these processes of integration um, and circulation and communication that were going on during this late 19th, early 20th century period, not just in Mexico, but across Latin America and really with regards to global markets and migration and knowledge circulation more broadly. Um, So... The book kind of moves from, it moves chronologically, but also thematically across some of the major issues that faced the people who were trying to turn this place into a center of production, as well as the people who were already living there or who had moved there as workers or kind of local, very local migrants. Um who saw an opportunity in this as well. And so the book kind of tries to balance these two halves of this emerging, building, growing economy, the kind of half that we imagine when we think about the export boom in Latin America, the kind of um, willful elites, both Mexican and Foreign who come to this place, seeing kind of an, an open commercial frontier that can be extracted from, exploited, and used to turn Mexico into a prosperous place, as well as all of these local smallholders and workers and kind of local business people who catch on that maybe there's something for that for them in that as well, um, and who constrain and collaborate with and and kind of interact with all of these kind of big, bad outsiders, as they're often seen from this local place, from this kind of from the Sokonusko, in ways that really lead to a really mixed economy by the end of it, in which nobody has gotten quite what they want out of it, local people have lost land, have are kind of working in circumstances that don't always meet what they would like them to be. But the outside investors and local hacendados, kind of big landholders and po- local politicians, national politicians are also not getting what they want out of this place necessarily. And yet it has become what is held up in Mexico City as well as locally as this real kind of exemplar of what the export boom can be for Mexico. And so this project really came about because I was interested in Chiapas from college kind of onward. The first class I took on Latin America I ended up kind of reading about the Zapatistas as so many people did kind of in the early 2000s and getting drawn southward. um, Thought I was going to write about the Zapatistas in college. Ended up going to Chiapas as this right before my senior year and figuring out that I had no interest in grappling with the politics, nor was I at all prepared as a college senior to kind of interact with, figure out how to do research on this very political group who have a huge amount of control um, over their own messaging, over the research that's being done on them and, and kind of fell further backward and backward into the 19th century. Um, and when I got to grad school, when I kind of realized through the, the doing of this research for my senior thesis that I really wanted to go to graduate school and continue to work in the 19th century, Chiapas continued to interest me and, and And particularly indigenous peoples and questions of labor in Chiapas continued to interest me. And how do we eventually get to the Zapatistas was kind of in the background always. And so as I approached kind of Chiapas, I was thinking about questions of labor and questions of migrant labor in particular. realized that somebody had just written that dissertation um, in the 19th century and so started looking for something else. Um, and I really, in many ways, lucked into the archival basis of this book that instead of, that, that kind of moved the project from being one about all of Chiapas and the development of coffee economies across the state to being a project specifically about this kind of, this district of the state where lucky for me, a local archivist Who, if anybody's ever going to Chiapas, look up Eustace Fenner. He is the most generous, wonderful person (laughs) and who knows where everything is. Um, And he was able to kind of point me towards these local archives that are still operational. You know, it's the local legal records office and the local public records office where they happen to have stacks of papers in the back corner that not many people had seen and nobody'd really done a huge amount with there was an article or two that had come out of them but in sitting there and going through all of these papers i realized that the story that i thought i was going to be telling which was kind of a more traditional extractive history of export agricultural development in this corner of mexico that was going to kind of just shore up a lot of what we thought about porfirian mexico ended up being a story that was much broader than the porfiriato and that had a cast of characters who looked who were the same cast of characters, but doing very different things than what um, I had anticipated that they might be doing based on the historiography of Chiapas, based on the historiography of Porphyry in Mexico, though that already was kind of changing, and, and my advisor at University of Chicago, Emilio Cudi, was one of the people who'd really started to push back against that in major ways. And so kind of following then his lead in certain ways, but really following these documents that I just sat with and because they weren't cataloged, because they weren't organized, I sat with and had to go through kind of page by page, came across this very different, messy, contradictory um, set of, of kind of economic ideas and economic Plans and, and kind of commercial endeavors and experiments that were going on in this place. And, and that's really kind of where the book came out of, first the dissertation and the book came out of was like trying to grapple with, okay, what is all of this stuff that I didn't think I was going to find, that I wasn't even, that I wasn't looking for, that I didn't know was going to be there, um, but that I in no way can ignore. And what comes out of it is this book where in conversations with other folks kind of around writing and editing and revising and then as it's come out talking about it's that kind of messiness and density of actors that is really kind of what I hope people take away from it on the um, kind of coming out the end of reading it is that there are so many people who we need to take account of when we're talking about the export boom. Um, There are so many people who had some investment in this process um, and in building the kinds of institutions and norms that that allowed it to happen, um, that, that provided for it, that this kind of a book in this kind of a small place can let us get at that maybe other studies thus far hadn't been able to.
0: Thank you so much. So before we get into some of those um, institutions and some of these actors, let's talk a little bit about the place. So your first chapter kind of sets the scene for the rest of the book. And we learn about both what made the Soconusco attractive for economic development and then what made it challenging to actually develop. So can you tell us more about that?
1: Sure. So the first chapter is, uh, is the first chapter that I wrote of the dissertation in certain ways. I was happy enough to come across the archives of Matias Romero, who was the Mexican minister of finance in the 1870s for both Benito Juarez and later he would become Porfirio Diaz's Minister of Hacienda as well. Um, and he, in the midst of being Minister of Hacienda, decided that, in fact, he um, was sick of Congress and sick of dealing with politics in Mexico City. And the best thing for him to do would be to kind of undertake some sort of personal endeavor that would demonstrate the, of you know, the the feasibility of Mexico being a prosperous place. And he decided for a wide variety of reasons to move south to the Soconusco and become uh, a caftelero, a, a coffee grower, a finquero. Um, he did this on the back of having a long correspondence with people in the Soconusco that was built up after, and I still don't exactly know when this correspondence started, precisely kind of how he finds the Soconusco, um, which is one of the great frustrations of of you know, personal frustrations of sending this book out into the world. I don't know who pointed him there in the first place, um, but the correspondence that precedes him moving to this region is all about how great this place is, how much kind of how rich the soils are, how well positioned it is, how it used to be prosperous on the back of cacao during the colonial era and the pre colonial era um and how it is now a backwater, but with lots of people willing to undertake all sorts of endeavors if they could only get some assistance. Um, but in this, in these letters that he's receiving from kind of local asandalos and local politicians, there's just this kind of catalog of things that are wrong with this place, that are keeping this place from becoming what it could be. And when you start reading about kind of the way Mexico Mexican elites are writing about their country more broadly, and this is an, uh, kind of a rhetoric that's echoed across Latin America, across much of the kind of early to mid, you know, the post-independence period, it is that, you know, we have been endowed by God with all of this natural wealth, and yet we are not yet doing something with it. And here are all of the things that are keeping us from doing something with this kind of providence-given um Potential prosperity, and so the Soconusco becomes a place for me to kind of lay out all of these challenges, which are things like geographic isolation and lack of communications. Which are, in the case of the Soconusco in particular, the the insecurity of the border with Guatemala, the unknowability of that border, the lack of institutions in general. Kind of there isn't a local, uh, there isn't a district judge who can provide the sort of land granting services that are needed to turn what's mostly not claimed pro- land into property. Um, there's no way, no, no easy way to buy up the public lands in this place. And like most of Mexico, most of the Soconosco at this point is public lands or maybe village commons. Some of which are in use, some of which aren't and are seen, of course, this of course is seen as an opportunity by villagers who are, you know, claiming land as they need it and expanding their own ahilos, expanding kind of village commons as as fits their needs, um, but is seen by kind of outside investors as a real impediment uh, to growth and a real disincentive to invest. If you don't know that you own this property, if you can't prove that you own this property, then why would you kind of put the work and money into it? that something like coffee requires. Um, there's also a scarcity of labor in large part because these villagers are doing their own thing. Um, and also there'd been a, you know, a huge demographic collapse after the conquest that really continued through the, the mid 19th century. Um, and then finally, there's just, there's no money. <laughs> there's, there's no inflows of capital into this place. There's nobody locally to lend capital. Um, there's just a lack of currency in general, but also, and if the kind of funds that might be needed uh, to go into some sort of new endeavor, are not to be had in this particular place. And so Romero initially responds to this by trying to pass some legislation at the congressional level by writing up kind of reports about how great this place could be, how it could be an example for Mexico, how it could become kind of the the way forward for the rest of the nation. Um, how isn't it shameful that Guatemala, which is right there and which the Soconusco might or might not be part of, could in fact, has in fact done so much more with Coffee and other export crops in a place just like this. And shouldn't we be ashamed of ourselves that we haven't done this yet with, with the Soconusco and places like it? And then when that kind of doesn't go far enough, he takes himself down there to be an agent of this particular kind of change. He's an absolute failure as a finquero. He kind of ends up, his fincas go bankrupt, they get burned down. Some of it's his fault. Um, He doesn't know how coffee works at all. (laughs) He doesn't understand agricultural production, but some of it is also the fault um, of local political bosses who... When they see him show up and realize what inviting this kind of national attention and, and the kind of aid that they've been asking for means is that more Mexicans, people from Mexico City, um, people with connections to the Mexican state are going to show up. They start kind of these local politicians, and this really comes up in chapter two, start pushing back against this in, in, in many ways. Um, and he gets chased out of the region as well as, you know, having kind of just this misunderstanding about how coffee itself works. He is just kind of politically pushed out of this place, which itself is another of the impediments that kind of potentially keeps a place like the Soponusco from becoming what elites there think it ought to be. Um, And so that's kind of where chapter one kind of situates all of these issues that face this region, and hopefully not in any sort of teleological way, hopefully not in any sort of way that makes it seem inevitable that they're going to be overcome, but rather in a way that really situates us in this particular place, in its geography, in its geology, um, and in its politics and, and kind of historical politics to understand the ways in which this is not an inevitable outcome. The soconusco in no way in Mexico in general, and again, more broadly, the export boom is not a thing that's bound to happen. It is a thing that requires kind of continual overcoming of a lot of different challenges or working around them.
0: So let's delve into one of those challenges a little bit. Um, As you've alluded to already, the Sokonusko is a borderlands. So can you tell us a little bit about how diplomacy and national boundary drawing figure into your story?
1: Sure. Um, this is something I've actually been thinking a lot about lately, especially given the increased attention that's been going to the Mexico Guatemala border with recent, um, kind of the politics around migration right now and the ways that, um, AMLO has promised to kind of enforce the Southern border in order to kind of follow through on Trump's, um, emphasis on, on stopping migration. Um, the, the borderlands, and this is something that's, that I've learned since in certain ways, some of it I knew at the time, but some of it is, is things that I've seen people present on since the book was out of my hands. This particular borderlands has always been a place of refuge and asylum, um, or had been across most of the 19th century for people from Central America. So the Sokonosko at independence is essentially left autonomous. Um, Chiapas had been part of the Audiencia of Guatemala, but voted to become part of Mexico um, after independence was declared rather than joining the Central American Federation. The Soconusco sent representatives to that that um, Congress in Chiapas to decide this vote, but it itself had voted to join Guatemala. And instead of settling this dispute between these two kind of neighboring nations, Guatemala or the Central American Republics, and or the Central American Federation, and Mexico through any sort of warfare or diplomacy at, at that point in the 1820s, it's basically just left to be, and, and the Soconusco reverts to kind of municipal governance. Um, and this meant that in that early period, as kind of civil wars are ongoing in Central America, as well as in Mexico, people take refuge there, and local municipalities kind of decide what to do with these political refugees and, and just kind of folks who are fleeing violence and, and different towns decide to do different things. And so that's really kind of the background for, for what's happening by the 1860s and 1870s is that this kind of state of either official autonomy that had been there until about the 1840s or after that, more or less default self-governance, um, despite Santa Ana having stormed south and officially claimed Mexic- or the Soconusco for Mexico. Guatemala never really acknowledged that, so it remained this kind of in-between zone. This kind of place, being a place of refuge, being a place of political organizing, because it was kind of ambiguous as to which nation it belonged to, is really kind of shaping the ways that politics are working in the Soconusco and that in many ways um, kind of, Everyday life is often interrupted by raiding, by political violence back and forth, by kind of local rivalries that turn into larger kind of spats that have kind of state, if not national, consequences because this has become a place of refuge, not just for kind of everyday people fleeing violence, but also for political exiles, um, for politicians who want to take over the governorship of Chiapas, for politicians who want to become president of Guatemala. Um, they come to the Soconusco to organize, um, to rally their troops, and figure out what's going on. And so, this is fine when there's not that many people living there, when there's a lot of empty land. But it doesn't really work well if you're a villager who continually ends up losing his farmland, or in the case, you know, or kind of suffering violence, um, seeing his wife be raped, things of being the wife who is who is raped by Guatemalan raiders. Um, it doesn't. Serve you terribly well, despite the fact that this kind of ambiguous borderland has allowed you to claim land, um, kind of work land, because there's no fixed property regime. But it also, if you are a potential investor, if you are Romero or kind of one of the the multitude of both Mexican and foreign investors who follow him to the Soconusco. Not knowing what property regime <laughs> oversees this place that you're potentially investing in, who you need to go to to secure a property title, and then also continually having this threat of militaries, militias, um, politicians coming into your place and using it to organize their you know attempted coups elsewhere is not is it's not really <laughs> um, the the grounds literally for for building a new kind of agricultural endeavor, and so. In this moment, um, this kind of useful ambiguity, as it had been for us the 19th century, stops being so useful. This also happens to be a moment in which, both in Mexico City and in Guatemala City, there's a real interest in um, presenting kind of national modernity to the rest of the world and, and national sovereignty, which in many ways in, can be marked by a fixed national border, right? That this is an era in which if you kind of I have this great map that I show my undergrads in my Latin America survey about when the borders are actually drawn, when borders get fixed um, across most of Latin America. And it's in this 1870s, 1880s, 1890s era that these border surveys are getting done in large part. And this is one of them. Um, but it's not an easy one because the US gets involved, of course, um, because they want to build a canal. <laughs> and Guatemala, a unified Central America, actually, under the power of the then Guatemalan president, Gustavo Dufino Barrios, who actually is from the borderlands as well, who had organized his coup from the Soconusco region, or kind of just across the border. He is president. He promises that he can unify the Central American isthmus, that he can provide the kind of peace that the U.S. might need in order to build a canal, the kind of stability um, that the U.S. might need to build a canal. And so the U.S. kind of gets involved in this ongoing dispute between Mexico and Guatemala over the Soconusco, if not Chiapas as well, um, as to, in order to kind of shore up Barrios's position, which is that the Soconusco should really be part of Guatemala. Mexico at this moment is also really invested. Diaz is, is recently president. We're talking about kind of the late 1870s at this point. He's building on kind of the institutional strength that Juarez has built before him um, and and kind of a moment in which Mexico finally feels like maybe it's a nation that has some things that draw it all together. And that giving up the Soconusco, let alone Chiapas, which constitutionally is a part of the Mexican nation, is an impossibility if Mexico is to maintain some sort of national kind of pride and integrity and sovereignty. Um, And so the two nations, Mexico and Guatemala, almost go to war. They both send troops to the border um, on the basis not of local people having written so many times saying, "Hey, please help us," which had been going on for a while, but rather on the basis of this kind of international diplomatic confrontation that's going on in this moment. Then, though, these local stories about, "Hey, I have you know, I have been raped. Uh, my land has been stolen." I won't invest in this place because I don't know who it belongs to. Um, you know, bureaucrats are showing up and trying to tax us from both sides of the border. All of these kind of local stories come to national and then international attention as kind of the moral backing behind Mexico, particularly, but also Guatemala, and making these assertions about where, um, who the Soconusco belongs to, where the border should be. Um, and eventually, uh, the U.S. president is assassinated. Kind of the the politics shift, um, and also Guatemala and the United States are embarrassed as more and more news of kind of um, filibustering offers to sell the Soconusco or gives the Soconusco to the United States. Thing, kind of dirty politics messiness on the side of the US and Guatemala come out um, kind of they are embarrassed into finally acceding to Mexico's insistence that the Soconusco and Chiapas belong to Mexico and that the US not serve as the arbiter of this decision but rather that Mexico can stand on its own diplomatic feet um, and um, kind of manage this relationship itself and so by that point um After some attempted negotiation by a pretty incompetent um, Guatemalan diplomat, uh, Barrios himself goes to Washington, D.C., where he meets with none other than Matias Romero, my former finance minister, uh, who at that point was kind of a, a special envoy to the United States. And the two of them, both of whom own property in this border region, sit down and sign a treaty in 1882, finally deciding, definitively deciding where the border will be. Um, that border takes 16 years to draw. Um, the knowledge that is drawn on in order to fix that border is very much local knowledge. Kind of when the the somewhat ambiguous terms of this treaty, which names a river, the Suchiate, which has been again in the news a lot lately, as part of the border, but then the parts that go kind of inland and towards what's now Belize get kind of murky. Um, they turn to you kind know, of the folks drawing the border line turn to local. People, local laborers often, of ambiguous nationality to tell them where the border might be. And so it's the story that's both an international story about Mexico asserting, and kind if of a, a dominant presence in the hemispheric diplomatic stage, as well as this very local story of what it means to live in an ambiguous borderland, and then how that can become kind of fixed without necessarily fixing people in place that people are given the opportunity to decide what nationality they are, if they, um, if they would so like to, uh, after this border treaty is is signed most of them don't um, people continue to move back and forth across the border regularly the border remains open in many ways but there is now a line that is satisfactory for both Mexico and Guatemala and Guatemala less so but it's at least known and that allows people who are coming to invest um, in order to know which government to turn to for property titles for legal defense, for just the kind of general understanding of what set of institutions um, are overseeing the properties that they are now kind of building up. Um, So that's kind of where the borderlands, it remains a borderlands. It remains really a place where flow, across back and forth to Guatemala really matters. Um, But the drawing of the borderline is really an important kind of a key moment in allowing things to move forward.
0: So moving to another one of the challenges to um that kind of uh, reliability that you talk about uh that um, makes economic development um easier uh one another challenge is political violence um so how did the Soconusco transition from what you describe as bullets to bureaucracy and what does that tell us about the way politics worked in Porfirian Mexico
1: Yeah so In the background of all of this, and this was the chapter that I rewrote, I don't know how many times, and I hope it works now, (laughs) Um, but it took a really long time to figure out how to tell kind of a political story of this place, um, where really, um, for kind of the first couple decades of the the narrative that I have, there is a cacique, his name is Sebastian Escobar, uh, who really dominates local politics, um, but does so both in alliance and kind of in in kind of and in pushing back against national politicians, particularly Porfirio Diaz. And the thing that made me kind of finally, I don't know, that gave me some purchase on this was looking back to a literature that's now very well developed on kind of popular liberalism and what liberalism meant in, in the provinces of Mexico in the 19th century, as well as thinking about institution building, as well as thinking about what is a bureaucracy and how does it function and, and where do most people interact with their governments? Um, is it through people? Like jefes políticos, which Escobar isn't, but basically you know, serves as a certain regard, or he is for a while, but then eventually is, is not becomes the, the municipal president though so as people laughingly say, you know oh, this is just him kind of he's he's stepping aside, but we all really know who's in control um, Is it through kind of do people interact with the government is the state built through kind of those political actors? Um, you know, elected or appointed political actors, or is it built through the kind of institutions um, of daily life, things, again, like legal courts, like public records offices, like civil registries, things of that sort, and realizing that what what I was seeing in this place was the transition between kind of that, you know, strongman politics wherein what really matters is one person um, or a few people, a kind of a local oligarchy That really controls everything, no matter what kind of statutes say. If you want to buy property, you go through this guy. If you want to secure labor, you go through this guy. If you want to get capital, if you want to get anything out of this place, you go through this guy, you grease his palms, you kind of stay on his good side, and you make this work to a system where, through use for the most part, both by kind of villagers who build up their own kind of local town councils a few days ride away from where Escobar's kind of home seat is. And through kind of the the workings of these investors, most of them by this point from elsewhere in Mexico or from abroad, who start deciding that in fact they, you know, they're actually going to use the local courts. They're going to ask the judges to do the things that according to the civil code, the judges are supposed to be doing. They're going to register their contracts um, with and then put them on in writing on paper signed by a notary into some sort of local kind of at this point, it's the local court rather than the, or the district court rather than the appellate records office, which doesn't yet exist, but they're going to make these institutions into what they need them to be. And through practice, through kind of sidestepping through greasing the palm, but then also writing the contract um, make this place into the kind of Um, the kind of place that can actually support a growing economy. And so Escobar himself was the one to write to Romero, to invite Romero's intervention in this to place, to, to say, Hey, look at how great this is. Let me facilitate you coming down here. You, I will help you buy a plantation. I will help you, you know, turn the Soconusco into what Mexico ought to be. And then realizes that that is not going to the ends that he wants it to. And he Escobar then becomes the one to chase um, district you know, federally appointed judges out of the town to uh, scare away the, the customs employees who come down, to uh, demand that he be given oversight of everything from the military to these kind of local federal appointments that Diaz is increasingly kind of sending out into the countryside. And because it's a border zone, because of everything I was talking about with regards to the second chapter, eventually Diaz has to acquiesce to this, that he knows that Escobar has lots of allies in Guatemala, that Escobar could kind of push back in a really strong way against um, this this move towards the Soconusco definitively being part of Mexico, or, or if nothing else, really undermine that treaty that has been signed. Um, and so he kind of grants a degree of local autonomy if not autonomy, at least oversight of the kind of federal appointments and and the kind of federal presence that Escobar has found so problematic uh, in order to keep Escobar kind of in line. But as more and more investors show up, um, as more and more kind of villagers show up and start establishing their own enterprises, the authority, kind of the centrality of, of one person is no longer quite so possible in this place and Escobar kind of starts to lose his grip. Um, and so what we see also here is kind of the larger process by which somebody, a president like Diaz or the, the Diaz government, and this is the one chapter in which Diaz really does appear a great deal, I think, um, is not built on necessarily the the power of Diaz, but rather the power of the institutions that he is is putting forward or the appeal of those institutions rather than the power, the appeal of these laws, these kind of codes, these civil and commercial codes that he is helping get written and put into practice or kind of put into law are becoming practice because they are useful. And the kind of institutional stretch that that we attribute to Diaz and of the consolidation that we attribute to him is as much people on the ground reaching out for those things, finding them useful, saying, yeah, we do want to be a part of this kind of large bureaucracy that you're building. We find it helpful to the things that we want to do rather than Diaz through people like Escobar in spite of people like Escobar kind of slamming these sorts of bureaucratic institutions into place. So it's a very slow process. It's this kind of this chapter where you go back and forth and I try and get at the messiness of this, of this, at the violence of this, at the ways that Escobar really kind of refuses a lot of mandates from Mexico city um, and then only kind of acquiesces when he's given control over them. And then the ways that local people, after having seen how Escobar will, and not local people, but kind of investors, um, after these, these local and, and migrant elites, after seeing how Escobar will go after them, if they really push back actively and you have people exiled, you have people murdered by Escobar and his henchmen, um, instead turn to institutions, turn to, things like the civil code um, to start working around somebody like him instead. And so it is this bullets to bureaucracy, but never definitively um, and never kind of in a a kind of progress narrative, but rather through a lot of negotiation and and in some ways sneaking around and and slow building up of that bureaucracy from from the grounds up, um, to call it the title of the book, um, rather than kind of from the top down.
0: So um, as you explain, land and property ownership uh, transformed during the period you study. So can you tell us something about the ways that um, large landowners and also smallholders and villagers sought to manage the landscape, as you put it?
1: Yeah, so the soconusco. So the story that we have about Porfirian Mexico, and it's not the only story we have anymore at all. There's, I'm really building on a lot of other people's work about how privatization of communal and public lands happens during this era. Um, this is kind of this is the the bit of the story that's so often a precursor to the Mexican Revolution, and I'm really trying to tell it in a different way. Um, but again, building on the work of a lot of other people who have demonstrated that. This era is not all about taking village lands and turning them into haciendas. There's a lot of other ways in which land kind of that had been either communally held or held by the state becomes private property. And so what I try and do in this chapter is, is kind of bring Two stories together. One is the story of public lands, which we actually there's a great book by Robert Holden, but otherwise has not been written about all that much. Um, as with most countries in this moment, most land in the com- in Mexico is public lands, and there is this massive process by which the state tries to turn all of that public land into private property to make it profitable. This is another of these kind of impediments to growth: is the fact that the state um, is such a huge landholder, in part because it just nobody else was claiming this land in part because it had taken all the lands from the church and after the reform wars. Um, And so how do you then turn all of those lands into private property? The other half of the story is the land is the story of village lands, sometimes called ajitos depends on kind of where you are in the country and what moment they were kind of institutionalized Um, in the Soconusco, They are called ajitos. And so these two stories really intersect with each other in this region because of kind of the way that the landscape, is the the way that the landscape is, um, as well as kind of where the desirable land for coffee, um, for coffee cultivation is going to be. And so the Soconusco, as with so many places, has much more land than it has people to fill it. I forget, there's a stat in there at some point about kind of what the population density is. It's really low. Um, So there's a lot of land, and people have kind of been claiming it in a variety of ways both um, kind of formal and informal for decades at this point, expanding villages up into the foothills where coffee is going to grow best, um, laying claims, sometimes using the proper federal procedures to public lands and sometimes just hoping that somebody will come along and, and kind of formalize a, an informal claim. And I have these wonderful maps, um, local kind of local ordinance map, or not ordinance maps, local, and not quite property titles, but kind of, Images of what somebody's property claim was that were drawn up by somebody who claimed to be a surveyor, but didn't have any formal training, but turned these things into somewhat locally salient, locally kind of valid land claims until a foreign company comes in and says, actually, no, we aren't going to recognize any of these. You have to go through this formal procedure um, in order to claim these kinds of lands. Um, And so in this place, you have, as I should have introduced it, the the Mexican Land and Colonization Company, which is one of these colonization companies that the Mexican government kind of Grants a concession to to take on this large project of land private of public land privatization. These companies, for the most part, have very little interest in grappling with village claims, and that's the case in Munculmucu as well. There's enough public land for them to deal with, and village claims are incredibly messy, and it is easier to kind of sidestep them uh, than actually kind of deal with figuring out who owns what and who has legal claim to what. But at the same time, villages, as I just said, had kind of moved up into the foothills, into these lands where it seems that kind of some of the best potential property for coffee growing was going to be. And so you do get individual actors. Um, there's a, a Swiss man whose last name is Keller who comes up in that particular chapter who who don't just want to take the public lands, don't just want to buy up and go through the procedures to buy formerly public lands that have been turned into titled property, but instead want to kind of take part in this privatization process around the helos to lay claim to more of this really fertile, potentially prosperous um, foothill land as well. And what I show over the course of the chapter is that by engaging with some of these privatization policies really on their own timeline um, and using their own surveyors and in ways that often the states find kind of dissatisfying villagers use those tools, those those kind of liberal tools of privatization to secure their own lands um, to their own benefit, often without paying for it, um, often taking advantage of state mandates that said that folks who were kind of had less than a certain amount of wealth would be granted land for a really nominal fee if if not for free. So a lot of villagers kind of use that to get title as it becomes necessary to do so. And in getting title, push back against people like Keller um, by saying, no, actually this is where we're going to draw the bounds of our property. This is where we're going to say, you cannot come into this place. And then in concert with these kind of colonization companies, not being interested in grappling with the complexities of village lands, really then denominate where outside actors, where large landholders can in fact stake claims to newly made property, where kind of this rolling landscape that is the foothills of the Sierra Madre de Chiapas um, as it's being turned into what on paper look like nice square properties. In fact, what you're seeing are, are what I'm looking at in those nice maps of well-surveyed supposedly properties by this foreign company are all of the in-between spaces, all of the places where lines don't meet, all of the places where you can tell that, well, once you start thinking about it, that somebody has said that, no, actually you can't draw, you can't claim this part of land as property. And so what I'm trying to do with this chapter is, is get at those two sides of privatization, the kind of large-scale public lands privatization, as well as the village privatization, and show that rather than kind of the large-scale shaping the small, at least in this place, it was the small-scale village claims that were really shaping the large, and that that maintained across um, the course of, of the, the period that I'm looking at, so that by and kind of whenever I can measure it, it's about half of the coffee coming out of this region is being grown on small holdings of about five hectares or less, and about half of it on what we would call haciendas or fincas. And so that this, but that that is a result of this real kind of way in which villagers claiming liberal land reform for their own use um, becomes the way in which they defend themselves from incursion by those by those assandos. Thank you. Um,
0: Can you tell us about uh, a term you use, incentivized contract labor, and about attempts to reform that system and how those played out?
1: Sure. Um, So incentivized contract labor is what I decided to call debt peonage um, after realizing that debt peonage didn't really capture what was going on in this particular part of Chiapas at all. And there's a lot of debates over the term debt peonage, in the colonial literature, in the 19th century literature, all across Latin America, is debt debt? Debt binds people somewhere, or is it credit? Um, is it an opportunity, or is it an impediment? Um, and in this place, it was definitely an opportunity, and it was a thing that laborers demanded um, as an incentive in order to go work and stay at work on a finca, in part because villagers had kind of maintained access to their lands. They didn't have kind of the incentives to go or the the need to go work for wages um, that they did in other parts of the country. Um, and instead, you kind know, of finqueros, especially newly immigrant finqueros who had none of the social connections that might give them, allow them to tap into um, and extract or coerce local labor, as was done elsewhere in Chiapas, as well as kind of early on within the Soconusco. And these newcomer planters don't have that kind of sway. Um, so they start looking elsewhere and realizing that if they, first of all, want to get local labor, they need to pay them well and provide them with kind of access to credit of various sorts, often at the, the company store, but as well as in terms of advanced pay, um, as well as then when they start reaching out to other parts of the state to and and as well as to Guatemala to access the kind of numbers of labor that they need in order to keep this to get this economy going and then keep it going, that they have to continue to offer these incentives, that they have to get people to be willing to move <laughs> in if they're going to move. Um, and that these incentives, and this is what I'm able to show through a whole lot of probate cases and places where I can get at who works where over a number of years, um, these incentives, these these debts to plantation owners, the plantation stores never keep people long. If people want to move, if laborers want to leave a plantation, they leave. Um, and it doesn't matter how much money they have outstanding. And I could not find cases really except a very scarce few in which plantation owners, asembelos, finqueros were able to go after laborers and kind of bring them back to their fincas um, or kind of force them to repay their outstanding debts. This is not appealing to finqueros. It's very appealing to the laborers who kind of do well out of this for the most part. And some of them then go on to become smallholders in their own right. They've established little villages, that sort of thing. Um, But the finqueros try and work around the system in a number of different ways. They try and import labor. Um, This goes back to Romero, who tries to bring in Chinese laborers. And then when that doesn't work, he tries to bring in prisoners, held by the state after a a so-called indigenous uprising in the Highlands. And when that doesn't work, he kind of gives up and gives into paying these incentives. Um, And then later in the 1890s, you see these kind of very well-connected British planters trying to bring in or bringing in labor from the South Pacific as part of this kind of larger Pacific circulation of labor in a way that, um, does not end up working out in part because many of them die of smallpox, um, but also because there's no real way that they can substitute for the kind of local labor that is so integral and local knowledge that is integral to the kind of work that needs to be done on these coffee fincas. When that doesn't work, kind of local, um, local get involved in a statewide argument about the legality of debt labor in Chiapas, if not in Mexico as a whole, under the Constitution in that moment, and use all of this moralistic language um, and liberal language about freedom of contract and freedom of movement to try and argue that debt labor is impeding the state and that it's bad for the workers as it is bad for the employers and that really what's needed is actual free wage labor. Um, And they kind of win and they get a, a really kind of meager new labor law out of it that nobody ends up following because once again, the laborers want the incentives, the laborers want the credit extended to them uh, if they are going to come work. And so you see across it, and this happens again at the revolution that there's this moment of attempting to abolish um, extensions of credit to workers and uh, force kind of uh, particular ways of paying laborers and both the Finquedos and the laborers essentially refuse it. And so This chapter is really showing kind of a different side of that peonage, one that, again, we've seen in other places. There's work in sugar in Peru. There's some work in Guatemala that points to similar kind of echoes when we talk about northern Mexico. Even we think about incentives. Um, But then in southern Mexico, which has so long been characterized as a place of extractive labor and and kind of really coerced labor, that you can see the similar sorts of scarcity um, leading to kind of negotiating power in a place like this.
0: Um, great. So let's, uh, you know, talk about your last chapter. Um, and I'd like to know a little bit about how we're able to see global integration play out on the local scale in the Soconusco. Sure.
1: Sure. Um, so the last chapter is a chapter about credit and commerce, um, and all of the ways in which money and things <laughs> were flowing into and out of and around this region. Um, and it was initially just a chapter about credit, and it was initially just a chapter about mortgages on fincas and advanced contracts for coffee deliveries. Um, and that did not capture all of what was going on, nor did it really capture the ways that what I wanted to talk about was actually this kind of global flow of stuff, and stuff including money, um, in this moment. And a lot of that desire came out of what I think was one of my favorite sources in, in writing this book which was, um, again, going back, I mentioned them before, but probate cases where you would get inventories of the local stores. Um, you'd get inventories of everything held in, you know, in that, in that chapter, I deal with this woman named Erlinda Rosales de Valo, eventually the widow Bado, um, after her husband who was from Gibraltar, but had moved to the Soconusco in the 1870s. She was born there to a local kind of, nominally elite family, Um, how Erlina, what is in her store when her store goes bankrupt? Well, it's not just local things and it's not just things related to agriculture, um, but it's things like champagne and fine French linen and fancy china and books from Germany and sardines from Spain and just kind of these material things that have gotten to this region through demand and through the kind of commercial connections that have been made via migration as well as um, the flows of coffee that have led people locally who, when they do well, uh, to want to be able to celebrate, to buy a new dress, to buy their favorite beer. Um, Beer not quite so much, it doesn't travel as well, but to buy their favorite wine. Um, There's wine from like four different countries that's on the shelves of some of these local stores. And I just, I loved this and I wanted to be able to capture this in some way. And so the chapter about credit and commerce began a way to kind of get at some of those you kind know, of that global presence in this place that again had been really a backwater. Um, but at the same time it's a chapter about how that's not just for elites who are doing well in a particular moment it's about how credit becomes in many ways overabundant in this place that even while currency remains really scarce. And just as a side note, most of the currency that's in circulation in this place is not Mexican pesos, but it's Guatemalan pesos, which are locally called Cachucas or Central and South American pesos, um, which is a really strange uh, acronym that I've never seen anywhere else. And, but it was the local usage was this Central and South American pesos. Um, and even those are really scarce. And so most everything, like the labor in the previous chapter, operates on credit. Um, and that credit comes in a multitude of forms. And so this chapter tries to get at kind of the diversity of forms that credit takes, as well as the diversity of actors who take part in that credit mark, in those credit markets and in building those credit markets and in reforming those credit markets when it becomes clear that credit is far too abundant in this place, that, um, there's, there's just too much flowing and that, in a a moment of kind of global downturn in the price of coffee, so many people go bankrupt and spectacularly bankrupt. And in the process, bankrupt all sorts of other people because it turns out they had, you know, mortgages on mortgages on mortgages and nobody could quite figure out who owed who what first. Um, And so using Elinda Rosales Tevado in many ways, who was a shopkeeper, as well as um, a major lender and a major borrower and herself a finquera as well, Um, To get at all of these different forms of credit and all of the kinds of people whose borrowing and lending kind of upheld, built, collapsed, and then built up again this particular market allows me again to get some of that kind of what I was talking about earlier, the ways in which a lot of things that had been on the books in the Mexican kind of civil and commercial codes and the regulation that was coming out of Mexico City that was supposed to ease Commerce hadn't really been put into action at all. In the ways in which people locally take those up to kind of shore up their own holdings to kind of make good on promises to make sure that they all know what's going on and nobody's overextended themselves or tricked um, people, other people into lending to them not knowing what they're getting when they're getting themselves involved in as well as to connect really globally um in the ways that the civil code kind of facilitates international investment by normalizing things by making these kinds of contracts these kinds of mortgages these kind of advanced agreements um reliable predictable um that they have kind of a set language in which everyone is is interacting um that percolates down to somebody borrowing three pesos from their neighbor up to people borrowing, you know, hundreds of thousands of pesos from, well, in the, or in German marks from a merchant in Hamburg. Um, so that's kind of where this chapter is both about the integration of goods. So how does champagne get to Southern Mexico, but also about this integration of, of kind of commercial norms um, that uh, again, kind of a village shopkeeper is using the same words to describe what she is doing as some merchant in New York City.
0: Thanks so much for this uh, really fascinating portrait of such a dynamic place. And before we uh, close for today, I just wanted to ask you about what you're working on now. What's uh, what's your current project?
1: Sure. So this project was really small in certain ways and made big claims, and I, I stand behind those big claims, but it's about a district, right? It's about one particular corner of Mexico. The next project, though, really builds outward from some of the larger issues that this brought to my attention to think about how Latin America as a whole in this era, kind of more broadly across the 19th century, is thinking about its future, is thinking about what it's going to do with itself and what it's going to do with this nature. So going back to those questions that I posited, and that my planters and local local politicians and, you know, the Mexican Minister of Finance were positing, in the 1870s about how do we make Mexico prosperous and thinking about the ways in which people across Latin America were thinking along those lines and what kinds of ideas they were generating as well as what kinds of practices they were undertaking. And so all of this really comes under the umbrella of a term that becomes kind of both a a driving phrase of the era as well as the name of major institution in most national governments, which is fomento. Um, so, foment I translated as development, which is still something that I'm kind of back and forth on exactly how to translate fomento. Um, but is essentially kind of these national development projects that are often based in very local extractive or agricultural projects um, that are engaging with ideas about science, about plant breeding, about improvement, um, as it's phrased in the UK or in the US at this point about um, what to do with this providential wealth of Latin America and how to how to turn it into a national economy in certain ways, kind of a national economic project that will also ensure sovereignty for these newly made nations. So in the wake of independence, how does Mexico shore up itself and make sure that it can continue to have a or can can build a presence on a global stage that is financed well enough based on a national economy, though again, I know that phrase is, is kind of anachronistic in this moment, um, but based on some sort of national prosperity, national well being uh, that draws on and makes use of this kind of natural wealth of the place. And so this is a project that started in Mexico, kind of as background, as I began turning the dissertation into a book. Um, I was going, where? who is publishing all of this stuff about the Soconusco? What is this department of Fomento, which was doing much of this publishing about the Soconusco? What is Fomento? And realizing that that wasn't just a project in Mexico, but that you get departments of Fomento or ministries of Fomento in so many countries. And even if they're not called Fomento, so Argentina has their Department of the Interior takes on many of these projects. In, In Colombia, it's the choreographic commission takes on many of these projects. And sometimes they're kind of public private partnerships. And so I'm still figuring out exactly where I'm going, kind of which countries in which kind of regions of those countries, which projects within those countries are going to kind of form the backbone of this project. But it is kind of this larger idea of rather than kind of as Stephen Haber's book is called, how did Latin America fall behind rather how did Latin America think about getting ahead (laughs) across the 19th century? Kind of how did it try and plan and, and move forward after independence to make use of a lot of the things that Haber has pointed to as being impediments to growth. Um, but how was it, how were elites as well as kind of folks on the ground thinking about those not being impediments, but rather being kind of the path forward, um, ideas about, you know, um, uh yeah, extraction, um, comparative advantage, and of whose ideas are at play. And so this is where I'm also reaching back into the Spanish Enlightenment. I'm just reading a lot right now. So if, if listeners have kind of suggestions as to where I should be reading, I would greatly appreciate them. I'm on Lee's this coming year and, and really delving into lots and lots of a great bibliography that I'm hopefully building for myself as I go to figure out kind of where specifically this kind of large and cumbersome but really exciting, I hope, um, project about kind of economic thought, that is also environmental thought, but is also institution building, um, takes different people across the 19th century. Well, thank
0: you so much. To me, that certainly does sound like a fascinating project, and I'm very excited to see um, where you go with it. So again, today, we've been speaking with Casey Lertz, who's an assistant professor of history at Johns Hopkins, about her book, From the Grounds Up, Building an Export Economy in Southern Mexico. Casey, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you again for having me, Rachel.